Isaiah chapter 22. I'm going to read the, four, the first four verses, then we're going to pray and get right into our study. Isaiah 22, verses 1 through 4. The burden against the valley of vision. What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They, they're captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. And therefore I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. Shall we pray? Father, we ask for the blessing and outpouring of your Holy Spirit this evening. Help us, Lord, to understand your word. May we, Lord, be attentive to the leading of your spirit, to hear you, and and to know, Lord, that we are rightly dividing your word. We want to know you more, and we want to know you better as we, as we go through these scriptures, in particular, this wonderful book of Isaiah. We pray, Father, for that uh, wisdom and understanding to not only come to us tonight, but, Lord, to be retained in us as your word, as an encouragement, as a challenge, as a warning, as an exhortation, as admonishment, but truly as your ready and available and true word. We ask these things tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the burdens that we have studied from chapter 13 on have been more than messages cataloging warnings of judgments against various nations. When we started in chapter 13, we began looking at these warnings against Babylon and Moab and Syria and Israel, which was at the time the northern kingdom, uh, and, uh, and then Ethiopia and Egypt so far. Now these chapters also aim to confer the responses of these nations to the Assyrian threat during and following the days of Isaiah. In other words, these chapters aim to clarify, aim to reveal, as it were, these responses and make clear what these responses are to that threat. Every one of those nations was going to feel the thrust of this particular army of the Assyrians. What would, they, what would be their response, especially in the condition that they were in because God was having to judge them. Now they may also, uh, as we look at uh, uh, these particular scriptures, may be pointing to the later invasions of the Babylonians and the Persians more than a hundred years later. And so we've already dealt with some of that in, in previous chapters. The Assyrians for sure are very clear in their, in their coming and attacking these nations but uh, we find that later on, in, in certain cases, it's the Babylonian period 
in, in the 6th century B.C. Uh, that uh, Isaiah may be referring to more clearly. But in chapter 22, the Lord God, through his prophet Isaiah, renders a judgment now against not a nation, but against the city of Jerusalem itself, calling it the Valley of Vision. And this particular city, the city of Jerusalem, God's city, as, as, as he wants to call it, as he has oftentimes said, that Mount Zion is his city, that Jerusalem is his city, where he wants his name to be. This particular city is under God's judgment as well. And now there is a question as to whether uh, the Jerusalem's uh, threat of being, uh, or Jerusalem's threat, I should say, of being destroyed was to come from Sennacherib's Assyrian armies in 701 B.C. Or the primary reference is actually to Babylon or the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So there, there is some question here. Many commentators will focus on the, on the Assyrian army because of certain comments that are made uh, it, within the context of chapter 22. Others have, have, have actually issued a, a very clear statement dealing with the fact that Sennacherib, when his armies come down to Jerusalem, are surrounding the city of Jerusalem, but uh, the thrust of that army does not come down upon Jerusalem because of Hezekiah's obedience to God. But then later on, of course, by 586 B.C., then the Babylonians complete what had been started actually by another army and another threat. So there may be in the prophecy itself that a possibility of applying the description in chapter 22 to both invasions, the near and the not so near. The near being 701 B.C. because uh, Isaiah was writing this, of course, about 740 B.C., thereabouts. So the near one would be uh, Sennacherib's uh, attack, and then later on, of course, 586 is the Babylonian, which is what destroys the city of Jerusalem. So the important thing to note here in this chapter is the description of what the people do in their hour of danger. In other words, the people that live in Jerusalem and in Judah, the southern kingdom. What is important is the description of what these people do in their hour of danger and then the rebuke of their attitude and the unbelief of, of their hearts in the midst of that great danger, whether that danger came from the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And we're going to, we're going to realize here that their, their hearts and their attitudes were very similar in 701 as it was in 586. So the Valley of Vision, then, that is mentioned here is without a doubt Jerusalem. We'll see that in just a moment as we get more into the chapter. But Jerusalem itself, we know, is a city that is on a hill, but it is surrounded by still higher hills, and because of this, it is in the midst of three valleys. The most important valley and the most significant valley being the Kidron Valley, which is on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem, between Jerusalem itself and the Mount of Olives. The valley that flows right between, there's the Kidron Valley. And Jerusalem then was the center for the worship of God, we, we know that. Uh, but it was also the home of some of God's prophets, in particular uh, Isaiah, because we're studying the book of Isaiah. And it gives us ample reason uh, for us to realize why it is being called then the Valley of Vision. 
The Lord in this case was revealing himself to Isaiah the prophet with a vision about the conquering of the city of Jerusalem. It was a place where God wanted to speak to his prophets, to speak to his people, to warn them, to prepare them, and, and, and actually to ha- cause their hearts, if they were far from God, to cause their hearts to return to God. And so it is an interesting name that God gives to Jerusalem, the Valley of Vision. But why does God declare a prophecy against Jerusalem in the midst of prophecies against all the nations? You know, you would think, well, you know, he's, he's bringing judgments against Babylon and, and, and Moab and so on and so forth, Egypt and, 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 and Syria and, and whatnot, but why then Jerusalem? Well, it's very simple. Since Judah, the southern kingdom, of which Jerusalem was the capital, since Judah had chosen to behave like its neighbors and to desert the Lord, she deserved then to be judged. Think about that. Because she wanted to be like the other nations. She wanted to be like these other people. She wanted to go into all kinds of alliances with all these nations round about. Well, then she deserves what they are being judged for as well. And it is because they have taken their eyes off of the Lord and began to put their eyes upon the other nations. And so the prophet questions the people of the city in verses 1 and 2. The burden against the valley of vision. What ails you now, he says, that you have all gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Your slain men are not slain with the sword nor dead in battle. Now, in Isaiah's day, Jerusalem was a, a, a joyous city as the people engaged in all kinds of celebrations. You know, we could go back, actually, I'd, I'd like for you to look back over at Isaiah chapter 5 for just a moment. Uh, but in, in, in Isaiah's time, they, boy, they, they look for anything to celebrate. I mean, oh, somebody's baby was born, we'll celebrate, you know, somebody's uh, family, uh, you know, had a Windfall, you know, we celebrate. We celebrate for all these things. Well, we look at the scriptures and they, they look and they say, oh, we can celebrate this, we can celebrate that, we celebrate, you know, Passover and whatnot. But then it just continued on. And I, and I mention this because it, it, it became something of a, of a time for them to use for their own benefits in this particular sense that uh, 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 he addresses here in Isaiah 5 uh, somewhat. In verses 11 through 13 of Isaiah 5, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute, these are all, see, these are all little indications of celebrations. The, the harp and the strings, the tambourine, the flute, wine in all their feasts or, or in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord. See, there's the problem. They feasted here, they feasted there, they did this and they did that, but they didn't, they didn't remember the work of the Lord. They were feasting for their own benefits. Nor notice the next phrase, they did not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of His hands. They weren't celebrating the Lord's work, they weren't celebrating the things that God had done and the things that God was doing. They were celebrating their, their own uh, joy, as it were. And therefore my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their, multiple, or their multitude dried up with thirst. And that is a very sad thing if you, if you give me just a moment to, to emphasize here the very fact that that can apply even to this day. The fact that people are looking for all kinds of things to celebrate, are looking for all kinds of things to do outside of giving thanks to God for what God has done for us as a church, for us as a people, for us as the body of Christ. And that he's doing each and every day of our lives. 
And we're trying to bring a lot of that into the church and to say, you know, we need to celebrate one thing or another that, that has to do with where we can feel good about ourselves and we can feel good about everybody else. And, and you need to, but, but we're forgetting something. We're forgetting God's Word. And we cannot forget what God has done. And more than anything else, the church should never forget the work that God has done through Jesus Christ. The work that Jesus Christ Himself has done for us on the cross, shedding His blood uh, for us, dying on the cross for our sins. Today there is really a famine in the land. Amos chapter 8 talks about that. It isn't a famine of food or of bread. It is a famine of the Word of God. I've talked about the emerging church, and the emerging church today is a movement that's kind of building up within the body of Christ, moving in a direction away from the Word of God, trying to recapture what they call the ancient future faith and the ancient future worship. Let's go back to the 2nd and the 3rd and 4th centuries where they lit candles, where they got together and meditated. But put, this, put aside the Word of God. Folks, we can't put this, the Word of God aside. The Word of God is the strength of our lives. It is the guide and direction, the light that we need each and every day of our lives. We begin to put that away. We have nothing. I didn't really want to get into that, but I, you know, it's just, it, it, it just burdens my heart. Because people are always looking for something else, something new, something different to do because I'm just tired of reading the Scriptures. I'm just tired of studying God's Word. I can't tire of it, folks. It's our very life. If you read just John chapter 1, the very beginning, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you skip down a few verses, and it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that that all flesh is as grass and all of this will pass away, but the Word of God will never pass away. It's what we can say is sure in this life. What God is teaching us today, what God wanted to teach them in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, God uh, had the Word out there, but then it began, it began to be stifled. You begin to read church history. You know, It got to the point where through the, a long period of time, the Word of God was, was, was hidden from the people. We can't hide the Word of God. You know, we, we, we've got to realize that, that we don't want to die of famine. We want to be made alive by the food that God has given us. The milk of the Word, the bread of the Word, the meat of the Word, the honey of the Word. The honey of the Word is great. <laughs> we need that too. Well, anyway, getting back to Isaiah, the prophet himself, he, he didn't participate in this party atmosphere. And that's what it really was. It was a party atmosphere. He didn't participate mainly because he saw the day coming when death and destruction would reign in the city of David. He saw that this was coming. God opened his eyes in the valley of vision and he, said, and he began to see that this wasn't anything to be, be, be just sitting back and, 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 and complacent about. He said, he said, you know, he had to ask them, what, what are you wailing about here? What ails you now that you've gone up to the housetops? You know, to go up to the housetops was, was a very significant thing in those days. The people went to the housetops, which they did in times of great uncertainty, in times of dismay, to lament and to cry and to look and to cry to heaven for help. That's what they would go on to the housetops 
to do, but the, but the prophet went into the valley himself. You know, they go to the house house, he goes to the valley. But when, they're, but when they're crying out, it sounds too much like their party atmosphere. He goes into the valley while wondering whether those were indeed cries for help, or maybe they were just expressions of joy as the enemy could be seen approaching. The slain mentioned in verse 2 were not killed bravely as in battle, but they died either by starving to death, they died either by famine, they died either by pestilence in the siege of the city, or as they fled, retreating in cowardice. But they didn't die in battle. If it was famine or pestilence or in flight, it was considered an inglorious kind of death. And Isaiah is pointing that out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this is an inglorious way to die. Because what it says of the heart is that their heart isn't into, into caring for their city and their people and the city of God and the people of God. They're into caring about themselves. Every major world empire has col- collapsed from within. Why? Because they cared more about themselves and the leadership than they cared about the people. In Jeremiah 14, verse 18, it says, If I go out to the field, then behold those slain with a sword. And if I enter the city, then behold those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land they do not know. He says, you know, there's a few out in the field killed, but the rest are in, they have, they, you know, they've died from starvation or famine or, or pestilence. Sick from the famine. And because of all of this, Isaiah was heavily burdened to the point of weeping bitterly. Even as Jeremiah, who was called the weeping prophet Isaiah, is weeping for his people. He's weeping. It, you know, it brings to mind, it brings to mind how, how, how our hearts may be toward those who, who don't know Jesus Christ and may treat us in a bad way. Think about that for just a moment. When we know that they're far from God, when we know that they're lost, completely lost from God and lost from Jesus Christ. You know, true believers in Jesus Christ, we don't rejoice when those people die uh, outside of Christ or die without Jesus. Our hearts are burdened because they could have had an opportunity to receive Christ, but they refused it and they chose not to. How sad that is. In verses 3 and 4 of our text in Isaiah 22, it says, All your rulers have fled together. They're captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together, and others are being taken into captivity. They have fled from afar, and therefore I said, Look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. The condition of the people caused Isaiah intense anguish of heart as he looked upon the city which would later be destroyed by the Babylonians and and he wept over it as, as the Lord Jesus at a later time would look down upon it from the Mount of Olives upon Jerusalem and he would weep as well. Notice in Luke 19 verse 41 it says, Now as he drew near, Jesus drawing near to the city, he saw the city and he wept over it saying, if, I, if you had known, he's speaking to Jerusalem, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you on every side. This speaking of the Romans in A.D. 70. 
and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will leave not leave uh, they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, God the Son in the flesh, was there for them to see. How many people are missing that today? Because they're going to church or they're going to services because they're looking for something to, to tickle their fancy, something to give them so, you know, just you know, some happiness for, for a moment's time and miss the Word of God, miss the, the Word Himself made flesh and dwelling among us. And Jesus wept because they missed it. They didn't know the time of their visitation. And again, I ask, how do you feel about people who don't know the Lord? How do you feel about those who give you a hard time? Do you weep for them? I know sometimes we may get angered, but we have to ask ourselves, can, can we ever truly weep for them? Because we know that if they were to die today without Christ, they're, they're lost forever from the presence of God. Isaiah goes on in verse 5, For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of the crying to the mountain. Elam, which is of course Persia, bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kir uh, uncovered the shield. It, it shall come to pass that your choices valley shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. And so in the vision that Isaiah was receiving, the last defenses of the city, the last defenses of the city, its walls, were breaking down. The Elamites, who would later be known as the Persians, were the prized archers in verse 6 here. The mention of Kur, a city about 100 miles north of the Persian Gulf, was to give indication that troops from all over the Assyrian Empire were coming to uh, attack Jerusalem. There was a time when the Elamites and, and those, of those of that surrounding region, even, even the smaller Babylonian nation at one time, before it became a larger nation, they were in, in cahoots with the Assyrians as well. So this, this may be a picture of that earlier uh, attack. But of course the walls don't come down until much later, until the Babylonians destroy the city. It's interesting to note that in Isaiah's day, Sennacherib, when Sennacherib surrounded Jerusalem, and I mentioned this earlier, but, but destruction was suspended because of the faithfulness of King Hezekiah and then later Josiah also. And this is one reason why this chapter continues to point to the Babylonian destruction more than a hundred years later. There was some threat in, in the attacks of the Assyrians, but, but the, the real destruction came much later. Well, let's go on. Verse 8, then it says, He removed the protection of Judah. He removed the covering, in other words. They had been covered by Him. The cover was lifted. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. I'll explain that in a moment. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You see, this is why we know that, that the Valley of Vision is the city of Jerusalem. 
You numbered the houses of Jerusalem, the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Okay, you did all of these things in in preparation and protection. But notice the next phrase. But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. And and Isaiah is making reference to the maker of the spring, the maker of the Gihon spring, the maker of the water. Up to this point, Isaiah had been had seen people dying, not from battle wounds, but from famine and disease. He saw the nation's rulers fleeing in fear as an army, an enemy army approached. But now in this section, the people are doing everything possible to prepare for a long siege. They first looked to the armor of the house of the forest. The house of the forest was a building that was constructed by Solomon at the time that he had also built the temple. Now he was building a lot of stuff at this time. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 7, you'll notice also that he built uh, his own house. And it says in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Kings 7, but Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. It didn't take him that long to build everything else, but for his own house, it took him 13 years. <laughs> and so he finished all his house, and he also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Why in Lebanon? Because in Lebanon were the great mighty cedars of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits uh, with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. That's a that had to have smelled real nice. You know, the, you ever smell cedar wood? It just has a wonderful aroma, aroma, wonderful fragrance to it. Can you imagine just building with all this cedar? And must have smelled great. But, uh, you know, it was a place where they, they actually kept a lot of armory. And so that's what they were, uh, they were looking at to, to uh, uh, go to the house of the forest and, and get the armor and prepare for this attack that was to come. What else did they do? Well, they also made sure that they sealed up the gaps in the wall. And how did they do that? Well, they tore down houses for the materials to repair the gaps. So can you imagine there was this, you know, this tearing down houses, you know, kind of a reconstruction as it were. Or, um, you know, like they want to do down in our own South El Paso, you know, tear down a lot of stuff so they can build up other stuff, you know. In this particular case, they were just trying to protect themselves. And so they were tearing down houses to plug up the gaps so they wouldn't have to go outside of the city and bring stuff in. Um, and that they also uh, did everything possible to uh, make sure that there was adequate water for a siege, more than likely referring to Hezekiah's tunnel, where a 1,777-foot tunnel was cut through solid rock to the Gihon Springs. Those who have been to Israel have, have been to Hezekiah's tunnel, been able to walk down you know, to see how... Uh, interestingly, it was uh, carved out. Uh, and then the wa- they brought the water into the city. And it, but, but you know what they did? Also, they covered up the spring so that the Assyrian army couldn't get water from it. So they did everything they could to keep their enemy from the water, but for the water to flow into the city itself. But none of this would eventually matter because God had removed Judah's protection. You see the beginning of verse 8? They did all these things, but God had lifted the protection. God had removed the protection. 
It's amazing to me how many people put their trust in the preparations, but not in the Lord. You know, it's interesting. People put a lot of trust in preparations. Do you all remember? (laughs) It's like that problem just a few years ago, right around this time. You know, when we moved from the year 1999 into the year 2000. You all remember that? What did we call it? Y2K? Everybody was worried that the computers were going to shut down on 2000 because they hadn't been set up properly and all. And, and so, you know, everybody was just kind of wondering, you know, what's going to happen? So they started thinking, well, maybe what we better do is we better start storing up all kinds of provisions, storing up all kinds of water. And people would, you know, I mean, just sell out stores of, of, of all kinds of provisions. Some people were making a killing on survival equipment and survival foods. And, and they were storing these up or going up into the mountains like some people from here went up to Rio Dosa and Cloudcroft. And they went up to their cabins and they locked themselves up and they had all this stuff, you know, they spent hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, you know, to store up, you know, and they sat there and waited and they looked at their TVs and they looked at their computers to see when they were going to shut off and it didn't happen. And then you saw in the paper, uh, you know, after the New Year's, you know, people selling all of their survival stuff and selling their water purification systems and all kinds of stuff because they spent so much money on something that they thought they had to prepare for. But, you know, and, and the saddest thing that I used to think about during that time was that a lot of those people were Christians. They weren't trusting the Lord. They were just trusting. You know, it's not wrong. It's not bad to, you know, store up some things and, and be ready for times when, you know, lights may go out or, your, you know, electricity is not working, your gas may be been cut off or whatever. I mean, you can, you can kind of get along. You, you can prepare. It's okay to do that. But when you're doing it in this, in this uh, frantic way, you know, to try to, oh, well, we don't know, maybe the Lord's coming now. Well, if He's coming, praise the Lord, right? I mean, if, if we know Jesus, we don't have to worry. We can provide, you know, have a few jerky treats or whatever. No, that's for dogs. Uh, what do they call them? Beef jerky. Yeah, I'm not giving our dogs, uh, you know, jerky treats all the time. I, that, yeah, they must taste okay, the dog eats it. But anyway, you know, I mean, you know, yeah, store a few of those if you want. But, I mean, come on. Where's our trust? It's all right to be prepared, but we ought to be sure that we're putting our trust in God and not in the preparations and provisions. Our trust is to be in God. Psalm 20, verses 6 and 7 says, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That's what we need to do. Remember the name of the Lord our God. He's never let us down and He never will. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, it says here, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. We will not fear. Why? Because God is our ever-present help in time of trouble. And He's our strength and He's our refuge. So what do we trust? The people did everything but trust in the Lord. And so instead of feasting, this is what they should have been doing. Look at verses 12 through 14. And in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. But instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
And then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, Surely this, for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. That is a chilling statement. For God to say, there will be no atonement for you. That's ominous, folks. We ought to take that very seriously. That God would say that. What He's saying is there comes a time. I've been merciful. I've been gracious. I've been that help. But there will be those who will walk away from it all and not once regard me as the provider, as the healer, as the giver of life, as the creator, as the protector, as all the provision, the sovereign God, the only one worthy of praise and worship, the only one worthy of of honor and glory. You see, what seems like the philosophy of the world in the face of danger and destruction was clearly the attitude of the people of Jerusalem. There seemed to be no true realization of their danger and no consideration of their low spiritual condition. When they should have been humbled before the Lord and waiting upon Him in fasting and in prayer, they were living as though their life was intended for fun, for frivolity. You know that the Apostle Paul quoted this phrase in verse 13, Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And he quoted it to demonstrate the foolishness of those who profess faith in Christ, and yet they denied the resurrection. This was and is the language of those people who don't realize that there is hope for a future. It boggles my mind to think that there are people who call themselves Christians, and yet they, 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 they question the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where is their hope going to be? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 really says that, you know, if, 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 uh, if we don't have that hope of Jesus' resurrection, we are of all men most miserable. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 32-34, where he quotes this little passage, he says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But then he says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. With the knowledge of God comes the hope of the promise and the promise of the hope. With the knowledge of God. But without the knowledge of God, there is no hope. And what the children of Israel were doing in Judah and in Jerusalem, they, they, what they needed to do was to grieve over what had brought them to that place, what had brought them to, to that place over their sin. That's what they needed to grieve over. The mention, by the way, the mention of baldness referred to the beginning of cleansing for those who had become defiled or unclean in some way, in particular those who had made a Nazarite vow, or, uh, a vow, I should say. Uh, you know, they, they made a vow, and they were, the, the, the vow was to, to let their hair grow long, just like Samson, who was one who had made that vow. But if they had touched an unclean thing, as we see here in Numbers 6, verse 9, and if anyone dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, speaking of a Nazarite, then he shall shave his, his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. 
was a sign of a beginning for the cleansing, you see. And so God makes reference to that in this prophecy that Isaiah gives to the people. Would those people ever find forgiveness if they were unwilling to confess their sin? And that's the point of God saying what He said about no atonement. Would these people ever find forgiveness if they were unwilling to confess their sin and to turn from it? You see, in Proverbs 28, verse 13, it says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. We know what 1 John 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So yes, there's forgiveness if we confess, if we repent of those sins. But if we don't, and, and never want to, you know, before God, if we don't ever do that, if we're not willing to, is there forgiveness there? And so the last part of the chapter then, as we come to the last part beginning at verse 15, the last part of the chapter has a very different character to it altogether. Our attention now is going to be directed to two men, both of whom held high positions of trust in the government of Hezekiah. We're going to meet them again in chapters 36 and 37. Their names are Shebna and Eliakim. In verse 15 it says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, and this is all about this person named Shebna. Go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here? And whom have you here? That you have hewn a sepulchre here. In other words, you've carved out a tomb for yourself as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Who did that? Who was able to do that? Very rich people. You remember Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament? But in the Old Testament, who did that? Who hewn out? Who would hew out a, 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 a rock to make a tomb? The kings. The kings did it. So this person, Shebna, is doing this for himself. He's not the king. And indeed the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariot shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. You see, the sad thing about Shebna is that he was only one of many leaders uh, who were unfaithful to the Lord. Just one of many. He just serves as an example for them all. As secretary of the treasury, that's what Shebna was, and we, we know this from a couple of verses of Scripture. But Shebna was second in command to King Hezekiah in authority. But he used his authority and possibly the king's finances, you know, kind of under the table, to build himself a monumental tomb. You see, this was a, this, this was a major uh, thing. You know, like uh, if, if, if we have, you know, a, if, if we live in a gated community where people can't get to you or whatever, or, or you know, you, 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 the current kind of cars that people drive today or whatever, something that's monumental to a person's mind to think that people have to realize that this person is well off. Well, this... Shebna builds this monumental tomb and then he purchases chariots for himself. And what it describes then is a man of selfish character, a greedy man, an ambitious man, using his office for personal enrichment and self-glorification. He had a tomb carved out of limestone, more than likely where the, close to where the kings were buried. 
But the Lord asks him some very pointed questions. He says, who do you think you are? Do you see that in verse 16? What have you here? And whom have you here? Talking about him, he says, who do you think you are? And, and, and what do you think you have? In reality, you're nothing. You're really nothing. And you have nothing. That is what God is saying to Shebna. Isaiah had prophesied that the people of Judah and Jerusalem would be carried away into exile, but Shebna didn't believe it. So what does he say? I'll die right here, and I'll be buried here. He carves a, a tomb out for himself. That is, that is a statement that says, I'm not going anywhere. They think they're going to come and take us in exile? No way. I'm going to stay here. This is where I'll die. This is where I'll be buried. And people say, look at Shebna's grave. Look at Shebna's tomb. What a glorious place it is. And God says, no, it's not going to happen. What does the Lord do in, in this passage? He demotes him, he disgraces him, and he deports him. He demotes him, he disgraces him, he deports him. The Lord will throw you away violently, O oh man. Mighty man, he'll surely seize you. He'll surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die. Not in that tomb. There you shall die. In that exile. Eventually he was thrown like a ball. Right into a far country. Probably Assyria. Where he died. Do you all remember the parable of Jesus in Luke chapter 12? Beginning at verse 16. Jesus spoke a parable to his disciples saying the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? <laughs> and so he said, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater and there I will store all my crops and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. From this lesson we find that Shebna was not rich toward God. He was only rich toward himself. And that's all he wanted. Fame and fortune. And so what did the Lord do? He chose a new man. A man named Eliakim. The, the, the name Eliakim is a great name because it means God will raise up. God will raise up. And he raised up a man to take place, the place of Shebna. And he called him my servant. Verse 20. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. Speaking to Shebna. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And now, notice carefully in verses 22 and following. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. Sound familiar? Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. Upon his shoulder. Think about it. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. Authority, power, government. 
So he shall open and no, man, no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. Does that sound familiar? Verse 23, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the, pros- uh, the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. Everything of value will be hung upon this person, Eliakim. Instead of exploiting the people, you see, he would be a father to them and use his authority, the key, for the good of the nation. He is mentioned along with Shebna in a couple of verses, by the way, just so you'll know. One being in 2 Kings 18, verse 18. There's a couple of others, but this is the first one here. When they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. So they're, they're mentioned, Eliakim and, and, and Shebna. But this particular prophecy reveals the hearts of these two men. And the Lord will get his work done. If he wasn't going to get it done through the, Sheb, the, the person named Shebna, he'd get it done through El, 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 Eliakim. I'm sorry. Eliakim. It is here that Eliakim becomes a type and a prophecy of, of the Messiah. He becomes a type of the Messiah. Listen carefully. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. A letter uh, given uh, from the angel, uh, given from the Lord Jesus to the angel of the church to give to Philadelphia. And he says, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. We just read that in this prophecy. Eliakim is a type of Christ, he is a type of the Messiah. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, going back a couple of chapters there in Revelation. But it's Jesus, the Messiah, who says, I am He who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. The keys, the keys of authority, the keys of power. No one else. No one else. In Matthew 16, verse 19. After Jesus has said to Peter, Peter, upon that confession, upon the rock of your confession. And he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. But the reality is, what he gave to Peter was the authority in in the sense of of being one of the leaders, you see, of the church. And some would say, well, look, you know, Peter got the keys, so therefore he has all authority, and his word would be, you know, above all, above everyone else as well. Eliakim would have this kind of authority from the Lord. And he would also be a, a, like a dependable peg, as it talks about a peg that is hammered into the wall on which you can hang many, many burdens, many kind of things. You could hang on it, but be sure it wouldn't go on anywhere. It would hold all of those burdens up. Isn't that like Jesus? In Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. It's like we come to him and we hang on his peg, and he holds us up, and he never lets us go. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Eliakim is a type of that very Christ that has said that to us. 
And then we see Shebna removed as the peg in verse 25. I'm coming back to that thought about Peter, by the way. I didn't didn't forget Peter. I want want to make something clear about Peter. But in Isaiah 22, verse 25, it says, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And many people believe that that peg that it's talking about in verse 25 is actually Shebna being removed so that the, the peg of Eliakim would be in place that would be the more secure peg. That's one particular view. The other view I'll, I'll mention in just a moment. But, but before Eliakim, or Eliakim can be put into his rightful place, Shebna must be removed and be cut down and fall. Shebna was given a place of honor and authority from the Lord, but he didn't hold it as a servant of the Lord. And so it was taken from him. Now it is important to realize that the authority that Jesus gave to his disciples, in particular Peter, but the authority that he gave to his disciples was neither unlimited nor attached from Jesus, nor unattached, I should say, from Jesus' direction. In other words, the authority was given, but under his direction, under his care, under his watchful eye, under his uh, uh, leading. Because even though the Lord gave the promise of the keys to Peter, Peter did not have unlimited authority. How do we know this? Very simply, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, we're not going to read it tonight, you can read it later, that's your homework. Peter was once challenged and rebuked by the Apostle Paul. And you know who was right? Paul. Peter was rebuked. And he received his rebuke. And things were made right. But the fact of the matter is, if he had been uh, so-called inerrant, as some people would say, well, you know, Peter had the keys of the kingdom, he could say whatever. No, he couldn't. He was limited because of the authority of Christ. And even Peter, you know, it showed some sense of fear when, when confronted about the very fact that, you know, at one time he had, he had stated, you know, that uh, he, he had been afraid to, to, to you know, to, to make contact with the Gentiles. And the Lord showed him there was nothing wrong. You know, God had made everything clean and he could go to the Gentiles. And he did that. But then later on, you know, he reneged on, uh, in a certain situation. And that's what Paul was confronting him about. It's confronting him about a certain hypocrisy about the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul confronted him. And Paul was right. And so even a godly leader like Eliakim and Peter. But going back to Isaiah and closing out this thought now. That even a godly leader like Eliakim could not prevent the eventual fall of Judah. In other words... Now we see the second interpretation of this verse. Even Eliakim being as strong and secure as he was as a peg to hold up these things could not prevent the eventual fall of Judah for one day the whole nation would fall. And that, of course, would be at the destruction by the Babylonians, 586. And so as it says at the very end of the verse, the Lord has spoken. That, that puts God's stamp on this whole thing. Eliakim was a type of Christ. But his authority couldn't keep 
the judgment from coming. Joseph was a type of Christ, but he was only a man. Abraham was a type of Christ in a sense, but Abraham being the father of, of, of the faithful, being the father of, of all those who are uh, faithful in Jesus Christ, guess what? He was just a man who made a lot of mistakes. He feared. Put his wife Sarah in all kinds of problems. David. Joshua. Types of Christ, but men nonetheless. I heard a, a quote today. I want to close with this, but I heard a quote today. A, a quote from a, an old British pastor, his contemporary of Charles Spurgeon in England. His name was F.B. Meyer and has written a lot of great, great works for the church. But it was just a very simple quote. He said, The best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. This is why we need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart. Not to trust in, 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 in men, I mean, per se. I mean, we certainly can hope and pray that God has allowed us to have men raised up who are faithful in, in God's word and faithful in things. But bottom line, we're still men. But Jesus Christ can be trusted fully and completely. Jesus Christ can be trusted. We're not to put our faith and our trust in chariots and horses. We're not to begin to trust in just the provisions that we have and the things that we have and and not to look at the Lord. We need to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and not lean on our own understanding. Let's trust in the Lord. Let's pray.